This week, I'm having a chat with Matt Rutherford, a solo sailor who holds the title of being the first person to single-handed, non-stop, circumnavigate the continent of America, rounding the infamous Cape Horn in the Southern Ocean and dodging icebergs of the Northwest Passage in the Arctic. In recent years, Matt has developed an expedition project working with scientists, NASA, and other private and government entities researching the ice caps and mapping new parts of the ocean in the northern latitudes. If you want to join Matt on some of these research expeditions to the Arctic, you can be a passenger on his 70-foot steel research vessel. Check out oceanresearchproject.org. And if you want to watch the documentary about his epic journey around the Americas, go to YouTube and search for Red Dot on the Ocean. If you want to support the podcast and view the full video versions of each episode, visit the Ocean Cruisers Patreon site and follow us on Instagram and Facebook to keep up to date with the guests, as well as tuning in to watch some of our own experiences as we start to get our boat ready to start our circumnavigation. My wife Hibble will be documenting some of our travels and I'll be sharing footage of the refit of our boat, which is a Juno 54 DS. I suppose you've made a bit of a name for yourself. You did something pretty risky when you were younger. Uh, <laughs> you sailed around the continent. Um, how did... They, where did that come from? Is that something that you dreamed of as a kid or was it a random idea? Was it a drunken bet? What was it? Um, no, I didn't grow up sailing. So I'm the only person in my family on either side of my family that's ever owned a sailboat. I grew up in Ohio, uh, near Cleveland. There is the Great Lakes. But yeah. I mean, my version, I never went sailing in the lakes. We used to go down there when I was a teenager and, and roll blunts and smoke them and look at the lake. And that was about as close as I got to to the lake at that time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, I'm a teenager. I got in lots of trouble. Now, by the time I was 16, I was locked up five times. So I basically grew up in five and out times. Of yeah, I grew up in a sure, cult an before that. Guy. Yeah, yeah. So I was in a cult. I was about 10. My parents were in it for about 25 years. So I just grew up in it. And it was, you know, this cult leader was like the next Jesus sort of thing. You know, it's kind of that right. scenario. And they got out and it just kind of destroyed the family. And then I kind of wound up on the streets a lot. And then I got in trouble a lot and then got locked up a bunch. Um, and so, yeah, when I was younger, the last thing on my mind was sailing around North and South America, nonstop yeah, single handed. Um, but I did, I made three goals when I was 19, uh, sort of started to make, you know, make some changes in my life. It took a while to happen, but um, anyways, one was to ride a bicycle uh, alone through Southeast Asia, which I did when I was 21. I took a piece of junk Schwinn bicycle you get for like $100 and rode it through Laos, Vietnam, Cambodia, Thailand. Another was to sail across the Atlantic as a captain. I didn't know if I'd be alone or not. I didn't, the Southeast Asia trip, I didn't have to be alone. I just didn't know anybody wanted to bike through Southeast Asia. So <laughs> yeah, I was like, all right. It's not on the top of most people's list, that one, was yeah, it? Yeah, you know, yeah. And I was in my early <laughs> 20s and most people aren't even thinking about that. So all right, whatever, I'll do it. And doing it alone was, was a good way to do it. <clears throat> I've been in Colombia by myself for the last couple of months. It's nice when you travel alone, it forces you to spend a lot of time with the local people. You learn sure. more about their culture. If you travel with friends, you're going to be hanging out with your friend. So, but you know, it's, Good and bad to both sides. But anyways, uh, it's same with sailing across the Atlantic. I didn't have to do that alone. But in 2008, I sailed from Annapolis to Europe, Africa, the Caribbean, and back on a 32-foot uh, Pearson, uh, which you get for about 15 grand, I guess. And uh, But I spent a few years rebuilding the boat. I did the entire eastern seaboard of the United States, uh, the Bahamas. You know, I kind of baby steps. I did a 600-mile single-handed passage up the coast. Uh, just kind of get, you know, it's it's... It takes a while to learn uh, to get comfortable to be 
uh, alone. Let's be able to sleep basically when you're alone in the ocean. One of the hard things yeah. I think of adjusting yeah. to single handing, there's two things. The first thing is the first time you go and like try to reef, if you have like slab reefing and you got to leave the cockpit and it's only, you like turn back to yell at the person at the wheel, like, Hey, turn left or to starboard. <laughs> and there's no one there. And you're like, Oh wait, yeah. I'm, I'm alone here. And the, the, the harder part though, is when you're trying to sleep, uh, you know, obviously getting run over by freighters is a concern. Back then, they didn't have AIS, or at least it was too expensive. I didn't have it. So back when I was doing those crossings, you know, you just, you didn't have AIS. Every 50 minutes or so, yeah? Yeah, sometimes. Well, I'd sleep a little longer. Depends on where you're at, proximity to mm. shipping lanes and coast and all that. But you do definitely a lot of alarm clocks and a lot of waking up. Um, but, you know, what's the chance of being hit by a freighter? Is it one in a thousand, one in a hundred thousand, one in a million? What's the chance of sleep deprivation if you don't sleep? It's 100%. You will always yeah, get true. sleep deprivation. So at some point, it's got to be like, the hell with it. Run me over. I'm going to bed. Um, but it takes a while to like get that quasi-fatalistic sort of uh, attitude because it's just not natural. You know, mm-hmm. naturally, you're like, oh, my God. So anyways, um, I, again, I had a girlfriend at the time, actually, and she was going to sail with me across the Atlantic. And she decided for good reason. She had some family issues, and she decided she didn't want to do it. And so, and she did give me the ultimatum. Basically, it's me or the boat. So I sailed off without her, uh, which sucked because I, you know, I really liked the girl. Easy decision. Yeah, it was and it wasn't. Like it was, it was, <laughs> it was kind of heartbreaking because, you know, the problem with single handing too is that for me, at least personally, when I'm in the ocean, there's no problem. Like it's fine. But when I drop an anchor in some port, that's when it gets lonely because I'm in a country I've never been to. I probably don't know anybody. I might not even speak the language. I'm half broke because I do all these trips on like a shoestring budget. And, you know, it's just that's when it gets hard, uh, I think, to be a single hander. But when you're actually sailing one port to the next, crossing oceans, going around the Americas, uh, it's not nearly as difficult. Uh, Loneliness is typically uh, thought about from the standards of being on land, which makes total sense because our species lives on land. And that loneliness, you're surrounded by people. And you're like, why does nobody want to be my friend? Why am I alone? It's an emotional form of loneliness where single-handing is like all the emotions taken out of it. It's mentally difficult, but it's more solitude than it is loneliness. And although solitude can be lonely, it's not emotional driven. I didn't have a wife or kids or any of that on any of these trips. I didn't have anything back on land. It would have been a lot harder. You're like, oh, my God, I miss my kids. Oh, my God, I miss my wife. I was single on both of those situations. And so it was easy to let go of land, particularly when I went around the Americas. I was alone in the ocean for 309 days. So you have to completely let go of land and and become basically one with the ocean and accept the ocean as your home. Land is not your home anymore. But to get back, my third goal of these goals was to create a nonprofit organization. So as I said, I did the first one. I did those set them when I was 19. I did the first goal when I was 21, biking. I was 28. The, uh, I started sailing at about 24. I got my first boat. It was a piece of junk, 25-footer from the 1960s with an outboard engine and took it down to the Florida Keys from Maryland. Made a lot of mistakes. Made every mistake you can make, basically. Um, and, but it was a good beater boat. You know, I mean, it was, it was a piece of crap. So, I mean, whatever. Um, and then I lost that in hurricanes in Florida, but then I got a 26 foot Pearson and a 32 foot Pearson. I was living on these boats. So the 32 footer, I could finally stand up without hitting my head inside the boat. That was like a massive, and I had a diesel. I had an, which was a lot more problems than I realized. An outboard can be a lot easier. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, take the outboard off, put another one on $800. I got a new 9.9 on the back. 
Yeah, yeah, diesels are obviously, but obviously diesels have, you know, range and alternators and other things that are beneficial. So, um, so yeah, I did the Europe, Africa, Caribbean trip and um, West Africa is really the highlight of that trip. Uh, made it 200 miles from the Gambia River or 180 or something like that, as far as you could go. Um, went over to the, and I left West Africa with about $30 to my name. And so when I got to the Caribbean, immediately I went to the U.S. Virgin Islands where I could work without a work visa. And then um, I came back to the States. I was doing some delivery. I've been doing deliveries for about 15 years now. And so I jumped on a delivery, made made some money and uh, came back to Annapolis. And I was working like I worked as a sail maker for North Sail. I worked as a rigger. I worked installing electronics. I didn't feel like working in a boatyard or I don't know. So I I decided just to do volunteer work until I ran out of money. And then I'd get a real job. Um, so I'll, there's an organization in Annapolis that helps people with mental and physical disabilities go sailing called CRAB, which is a short for uh, Chesapeake Regional Accessible Boating. So I was doing volunteer work for them and I was helping fix a boat that they're going to sell. And I wanted to do the Northwest Passage. Like I, I'm a big fan of the explorers, people like Shackleton and Amundsen. Scott had mm-hmm. some great guys, Franklin. I mean, I can go on and on about it. And, um, and you know, in some ways, they're, you know, they're, they're some of my biggest heroes, when I got into sailing, it was sort of natural for me to uh, drift over towards people like Bernard Moltissier and Robin Knox Johnson, the, the original pioneers of long distance single handed sailing, because it was a form of exploration, very different than Shackleton in, in, in the goals, but similar in this kind of impossible voyage sort of sense of exploration. So, you know, I, I wanted to do Northwest Passage. It, it was a, there's a huge part of explorer history. Uh, within that area. Lots and lots of Englishmen in particular died trying to get through it. And that's a long story within itself. But it was kind of like if if Cape Horn is Mount Everest, then Northwest Passage is K2, you know? So uh, so I was like, hey, Don, the Don Backy was the guy who created it. He was a a paraplegic and, you know, uh, had been for some time since a car accident. And he came up in his wheelchair and I said, Don, why don't you let me take this boat up Northwest Passage? We'll raise some money for the organization. And I was serious, but I thought maybe he would laugh at me. I don't know. And uh, he was like, all right, let's do it. So then we were able to get an Alban Vega, which is a 27 foot Scandinavian boat. Not, I mean, you could walk right past it. You would think nothing about it. They don't look like anything special. They're only about a 5,000 pound displacement. Um, but there, you can beat the crap out of them uh, for, for being a small, inexpensive boat, relatively speaking. You can pick one up between five and 15,000 pretty easily. So, anyways, we had this Alban Vega. And the first boat didn't even have a motor. It was a 1950s Continental folk boat, which is a kind of an ocean going 25 footer. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, it's like, all right, I got a motor. I got a 27 footer. I had my 323 Pearson, my 32 foot Pearson still. But, you know, I thought that, well, I thought that if I lose the the boat, um, I I lived on the boat. I've been living aboard for 16 out of the last 18 years. And I've lived on seven different boats and, and so on. And I thought, well, the Pearson's my home. If I do lose the ship, but I don't die losing the ship somehow, like I survive, at least I still have my home. So I can go back home. The Pearson is still going to be there. I didn't have any money to buy another sailboat. And I thought using one of their boats would kind of bring the collaboration together. Plus, I was tired of being on the Pearson. I lived on it for six years. I'd sailed it all over the place. I was just tired of being in it. At least the Alban Vega was small. I couldn't stand up without hitting my head. But at least it was like a new environment of some sort. And yeah, it was a little challenge to, as well. Yeah, yeah. It was good to rip it apart, put it back together. I did all the work myself. Uh, we didn't have money to hire anybody. 
Uh, we ran out of money trying to fund that, that trip. Uh, so I had to rebuild some of the bulkheads from wood that I pulled out of dumpsters in Annapolis, Maryland, uh, because we literally didn't have enough money to buy wood at one point in a refit. Uh, so, yeah, but, you know, it's hard to get funding. You talk about sailing around the Americas nonstop, single-handed on a 27-foot, 40-year-old boat. I mean, half the people don't know what you're talking about because Americans are not the greatest with geography, so don't even know what the Northwest Passage is. Uh, the other half, you know, think you're going to die. And they're not going to fund you if they think you're crazy. <laughs> yeah. So it was difficult to get any money for it. So anyways, uh, it just sort of progressed. It went from the Northwest Passage. And I was like, well, you know, it'd be good to get the boat back to Annapolis. You know, a Panama Canal is kind of expensive these days. You might as well go around Cape Horn. Um, but in all seriousness, yeah, it, it, I realized in the process of researching uh, that nobody had ever made it around North and South America uh, nonstop single-handed. And it's roughly the same distance as sailing around the world nonstop single-handed. I did 27,077 miles in the process of doing it. So it's pretty damn That's close. That's more than a circumnavigation then, yeah. Yeah, roughly speaking, they're pretty similar. Depends on how you do the circumnavigation, mm -hmm. but it's pretty similar to the, to the distance. Uh, but instead of jumping down into the southerly trades, uh, the westerlies, roaring 40s and furious 50s and, and the southern latitudes, which are difficult for a good reason, as we all know, giant seas, big storms, Instead, it's trans-equatorial. So you have to go through, if you look at the planet, you have all these different sections. We have trade winds coming out the west here. You got doldrums. You got them coming out the east here. Then you got more doldrums. And so you have to go through all those different bands of wind yeah. directions and things. And, and of course, sailing through the Northwest Passage, the Arctic and ice and polar bears, they'll eat you if you get shipwrecked and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and then you have Cape Horn on the bottom, which, you know, Cape Horn is Cape Horn. Um, so it seemed like a really good challenge and, um, and I guess, I, you know, I, I, I was the whole, you know, Europe after Caribbean single-handed trip just made me hungry for more. I wasn't burned out. If anything, I was just getting started, you know? So I was, uh, and, and, you know, my inner Shackleton was on fire, you know, I was, uh, I was feeling like an explorer. So, so yeah, I, um, worked, took me about 10 months from the, when I got back from that Europe after Caribbean trip, to when I left on the next trip. Uh, and I didn't know what was going to happen, of course. I thought if I made it through the Northwest Passage, I'd be lucky, and anything after that would be bonus. Uh, but I was very determined um, not to give up. I, the only reasons I allowed myself to give up would be catastrophic injury to myself or catastrophic injury to the vessel. So if I lose my mast and my rudder, I mean, I'm not going to be able to keep going. If I break both of my arms, well, I'm probably going to have to go to land somehow. Uh, but outside of absolute uh, catastrophe, uh, the only way for me to get home was to keep going forward and eventually I'll make my little circle and I'll get home. Um, so it was an interesting trip. Like I said, you, you know, I had to, the ocean became my home land. It's almost like land didn't exist after, after a while, you know, after, especially after a couple hundred days at sea alone, it's like, you don't even want to go back to land. You read about Bernard Moltissier and how he just wanted to stay out there forever, you know, and he just kept going. And, um, you know, I started feeling that too. Like I understood it, you know, cause it's like after a while, it's just, you just kind of fall in love with it in a weird way yeah, because yeah. you miss having a conversation. Um, I miss being able to, to have a girlfriend or any kind of <laughs> intimacy whatsoever. I mean, that part sucks. You know, if there were mermaids out there, then I'd be, I'd, maybe I never would have came back. I could be dating a mermaid. <laughs> They'd get some attention. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. But I'm just out there alone, you know? So, yeah. Um, so yeah, it was a good trip. And, um, and we can, we did raise $120,000 for that nonprofit. Don Backey passed away 
not long after I got back. And uh, they had, it was a, a little bit of a rough transition to find a new executive director. They had to go through a couple of them before they found the one they have now. Um, and that money got them through that process or helped them get through that process. And they've got this guy now who's just amazing. They actually bought their own marina in Annapolis with some really big funding uh, a year ago. And they're rebuilding. They tore it down. They're going to have the only handicap accessible marina in the entire country of the United States. So it's Imagine. like this yeah, this guy is taking it to a level Don Backey could never have imagined. Um, so I'm great. I'm, I'm I'm really happy for the organization, and I'm you know I'm honored that, that I was able to, to to be part of it in that way. And of course, the the trip, as you said, the trip around the Americas, I, I didn't really know. It was hard for me to think what would happen when I get back because I didn't I didn't know what. I mean, I kind of gave myself a 50-50 chance of not getting back at all. You know, I had to accept the fact mm. that mm. there's a chance I might die in the ocean which basically means drowning. And I just had to accept that I, I had to accept death and be okay with it, which takes a little while. Um, but it's the most liberating thing. Now, this is not a mentality I would normally have, you know, on land or, or on a research expeditions that I run now. Different expeditions need different mentalities. And that one needed an extreme mentality for extreme expedition. So I had to let go and accept the fact that, yeah, man, you might die. You got to be okay with that. But it was liberating because then when I was surrounded by ice in the Arctic or big storms, Cape Horn or, or the Bering Sea or whatever it is, um, you know, I wasn't afraid because I had already accepted it. So you could kind of have fun with it under those situations, you know, um, as much fun as you can when you have giant waves crashing on your boat. But um, like going around Cape Horn, I'd make like a game of it. Like if my cockpit was like half full of water from a wave, I'd be like, oh, that's a five out of 10 Poseidon. You can do better than that. You know, a 10 out of 10, it's like completely full. Water's pouring down your companionway. My uh, manual bilge pump and automatic bilge pump broke in the Pacific. So I also sprung a leak in the Pacific. I had to beat into it for about 41 days at one point against the uh, easterlies trying to get towards Cape Horn. And um, open one old transducer started leaking. Um, there wasn't much I could do about it because it was coming in. There was pressure. I tried using putty and stuff, but there really wasn't nothing I could do to stop it. So for the last 16,000 miles, I had to bail my boat out with an empty can of corn because that's the only thing small enough to fit in the little sump of an Alban Vega. So you got a three-gallon bucket, you got your can of corn, and you fill it up, you dump it in a cockpit, and every, you know, six, eight hours, you do it again or else your floorboards might start floating around. And that was before Cape Horn. Uh, but I told you, it was determination. I did not find that to be catastrophic. That was a perfect excuse to quit. I could have quit. Like, man, my boat was leaking. I was, I was essentially sinking. And yeah, people probably would have been like, all right, but I wouldn't have been all right with it. I don't think that was catastrophic enough. Uh, and at that point, I was invested pretty heavily, obviously, because because Northwest Passage was behind me. The Bering Sea, I put my boat upside down there. That was behind me. Um, Cape Horn did scare the shit out of me. I'm not going to lie. I thought I was sailing into like a meat grinder, like very, very slowly because it's a slow boat. It's a little boat. Very slowly, like sailing into some like meat grinder that's just going to get me. Uh, but lucky enough, I, I made it around. I had some storms, of course, but um, nothing had sunk me, I guess. So, so yeah, it was a long, crazy trip. And obviously, we could go on about it for the whole podcast. But um, that did. They made a film about it called Red Dot in the Ocean. Kind of a yep. lower budget yep. documentary, I ain't gonna lie. But and my camera broke when the boat went upside down in the Bering Sea. So after that, it, they started jumping into my backstory a lot because I, there was no more footage of me. Like I had a camera, I had an audio like recorder. So instead of doing a ship's log, like a written log, I would do a verbal log. 
I'm also kind of lazy when it comes to writing. So it's like, I knew I'd be better off. I could just speak into a recorder. So we did have like audio from after I got put upside down and we had uh, pictures, we had B-roll. Um, but yeah, you don't see me as much in the ocean at that point. They do a good job of covering it up. Most people don't realize it, but I had, I only had one camera. I didn't think, I, I didn't know I was going to make a film. I didn't know if I'd survive, you know? And so we didn't have any money. So I had like the, the original competition to a GoPro was called a contour. And it was like this little tiny, it's basically like a GoPro. It had a waterproof case that I bought for it. And, but it was not knockdown proof. So when I got, you know, knocked down and put upside down, it, it, I found it in some pots and pans later on. I don't even know how it got there, but it was broken. And that was the end of, of that. So anyways, they made the film, uh, whatever magazines wrote, whatever articles, uh, now it's time to start the third goal, which is the nonprofit. I didn't know what that would be when I was 19, but I decided to create an ocean research nonprofit that uses sailboats uh, as the primary uh, uh, data collection platform yeah. and yeah. Um, try to use whatever notoriety that I could get from that trip around the Americas and kind of redirect it to this nonprofit, um, which is was harder than I thought it would be. Honestly, I thought it I mean, maybe I was just being optimistic. I tend to be optimistic about these things. Maybe I was a little too optimistic, but. Um, well, but from yeah, like a cash yeah. perspective to get um, sponsors and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, both that and the science, like it's all. It, it, I mean, basically the idea is that the technologies needed to do scientific research have gotten smaller and less power hungry, just like, you know, cell phones yeah. in your pocket yeah. are more powerful than the old computers that took up a room. It's the same thing with science. And you could do research on a sailboat today you never could have done 20 years ago. And if you imagine 20 years from now, and this gets particularly interesting when you integrate fully autonomous aerial and underwater data collecting robots, the drones in the air, the water underwater vehicles. Um, and so a sailboat is a great platform to support those technologies and a lot of uh, uh, various research equipment. The real kicker is that a sailboat can operate. We operate mostly in the Arctic. Uh, we have since 2015. We we're doing some other stuff in the open ocean before that. But a sailboat can operate at less than 10% of the cost of a traditional research vessel with a lot less fossil fuels. So United oh, States yeah. has a research vessel uh, called uh, the Sekuliak. It operates out of Alaska. It's partially University of Alaska, partially US government. I have a friend who's an engineer on that boat, and that's the only reason why I know this, but they burn about 2,000 gallons of diesel every single day. I'll burn 2,000 gallons in five 2, months. Gallons? Shit, 2,000 gallons. Yeah, I don't know what that is in liters, but it's a whole a whole lot of liters. There's something like yeah. 8,000 or 7,000 7, yeah, gallons. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, 3.2 yeah. or something, yeah. And they're about $100,000 a day. They get some subsidies from the government, so it's about 50 grand, but you know the real price is closer to 100 grand a day. So a hundred thousand a day, uh, you know, who can afford that? Who or even fifty thousand a day? Like, who has access to that? We can actually operate at five percent of that boat's cost. Now, I'm not saying we can do everything they can do, but as these technologies are getting better, we can do more and more. Um, and it's it's not about replacing the big vessels, and it's not about being in competition with traditional research vessels. I'm just trying to say that there's a there's an alternative in the middle. So let's say you're in Greenland, for instance or Northwest Passage, right? Uh, you wanna do research. You have two options right now for the most part. One is these very large expensive boats that take a lot of funding that are very hard to get the funding. And then when you're on them, they have a very tight schedule because of the they're expensive. They can't hang out here and there. They gotta go, yeah. you, you know, if there's bad weather, 
and that's your time to get research, well, you're not going to get any. You can also have a campsite. You can go to an area. You can basically pitch a tent. You can hire some locals that have these little fiberglass boats with an outboard on the back to take you to the local fjord, the local, you know, glacier. And you could do what research you could do off that, you know, it's just a fiberglass boat with an outboard uh, or some variation of it. So the sailboat is like an intermediary. Like we can operate like the big boats, but we can also be a campsite, except you're not in some little fiberglass thing. You have a big boat with a, you know, an engine and a generator. Nowadays, we have this large 72-foot steel schooner I spent the last few years building, but um, which is another story. But, uh, you know, I'm just, and the big goal here, like the long-term utopian pie in the sky is I'm trying to create a global fleet of research-ready sail, uh, sailboats. So it's not just about me and my one boat. If I could really create this fleet, then I could really prove that the sailboat is not just a pleasure craft. And after the invention of the steam engine and the invest, invention of the combustion engine, sailboats have been largely relegated to pleasure craft. Uh, I think they have a place in the professional world as these cost-effective, environmentally friendly data collection platforms. But to really prove this, I got to have more than one boat. I really, I need to create like an armada of research sailboats, which is going to take the rest of my life, uh, which is fine because I got nothing else to do. I mean, what else, what else am I going to do? Might as well. I mean, <laughs> right. I just count keeps the stones. Keeps me out of trouble. Uh, but the funding has been yeah, yeah. more difficult than initially. First off, scientists are somewhat skeptical of sailboat research. Not all of them. And this is getting better. In the 10 years I've been doing this, it's gotten quite a bit better. Um, but, Where does the skepticism come from? Like, I don't suppose that it understands the the physical differences of one. Is it, is it storage or time? Like, why so? Uh, I think uh, part of it is it's sailors. <laughs> not to, not yeah, to sailors, we've got the but, best reputation, I suppose. <laughs> no, it's, the, the problem is that, like, last year when we went to Greenland and we, and we had a hundred and twenty some day expedition and. Every day, every moment of every day, you're doing research. There was never one time in that expedition where I said, hey, I want to go here or I want to check out that there. Every moment was driven by, the, we have a scientist in the organization that, that like runs the science and then we collaborate. So we had scientists flying in from Spain and England. We had people from Brazil and Israel, you know, in different scientists at different times. We have one primary that, that works for the organization itself. And they're the one who says, where do we go and what we do? And my job is to make sure we can do it, you know, whatever that might be, and get there and get back without anybody dying or losing the boat or, or any of the rest. Um, and then there's a lot of administrative stuff I have to do back in the United States behind the scenes. But sailors typically, I mean, why do most people sail off? It's not to work like you're no, to get away. It's to get away. And yeah, I mean, of course, sailing is work. The ocean is not an easy place. But there's a lot of adventure and sightseeing, and it's just a different kind of mentality. I've done it when I did that Europe Africa Caribbean trip. You know, it was I wasn't there trying to work. I was checking out Spain or Portugal or England or Ireland or whatever it was, West Africa, you know, Senegal, Gambia. Um, so yeah, it's just a different mentality. So there's people who are sailing who want to do something, you know, I don't know, environmental or helpful or whatever you want to call it while they're on their Greenland adventure. Let's just keep using Greenland as an example. Uh, but I don't think they fully realize the amount of time, energy, and hard work. It's a totally different mentality. Um, so uh, you hear stories over the years of different scientists who try to use this or that boat, particularly in these more remote areas, 
and have kind of been burned one way or another. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody is like that. There's an organization out of France called Terra, and they've been funded since day one by some fashion mogul. I don't even know what fashion brand. I don't really know much about fashion, honestly. I still wear T-shirts and jeans, and I'm 41 years old, you know? I'm a H&M but, uh, guy, so I don't know. <laughs> yeah, 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 I couldn't tell you. But, um, but the point is they've had millions of dollars since the beginning. They got Peter Blake's old boat, the last boat Peter Blake had before he died, uh, which is a hell of a boat, like some 120-foot aluminum thing. Um, and they've done a good job of showing that, you know, research can be done on a professional level from a sailboat. And having all that massive funding, you know, they don't have to worry about money in the same way. I don't have anybody backing me. I never have. Not Well, I never have, period. I've never had one donor throw money at me in any real way. So, um, and they're not trying to build a fleet of boats. They're happy with their one boat. But nevertheless, yeah, yeah. they've they've done a lot. And I think that they've been very helpful uh, to, to show that, yeah, okay, this, this can be done. But it's one example. Most actual research from sailboats, what it is, is it's selling berths and it's doing citizen science. Now, citizen science can be a good thing. And I'm not, you know, I'm certainly not saying bad about it. Sometimes it's a waste of time. It just depends on how well the citizen science is organized by the scientists themselves. Because a bunch of data doesn't mean anything if you don't do anything with it. And I do know citizen science projects that were essentially nothing ever happened. So, yeah, you know, sure. it's like greenwashing at that point. And there can be variations of that. But a lot of times it's like, okay, we're going to cross the Atlantic. We're going to sell berths and we're going to like, you know, grab some plastic samples, you know, microplastics or something along the way, which is cool and great and everything. But it's not really much, honestly. Like we spent two years mapping out garbage patches, uh, the uh, North Atlantic and North Pacific garbage patches. And, you know, we'd spend like 70 days out there in the remote areas that nobody, we'd map the last uncharted areas, particularly in the, in the Atlantic garbage patch. It's just so far off the beaten path. There's no reason you couldn't sell births to do it because like it's mm. it's not like you have to dip down into the Bermuda Azores high pressure system in the doldrums and hang out down there. We found an abandoned Swan 48 there, which kind of was a crazy situation. I accidentally went. Yeah, I went viral on accident recently. I didn't mean to. I may I just took a clip of because I had like a GoPro when I'm like, you know, going through this abandoned ship. And this was years ago. We made a video. It was like eight minutes long about some other stuff and had that in there. And I was like, well, I wonder what happens if I just cut that part of the video, stick it out on YouTube, you know, and just see what happens. It was about two months ago. And I didn't really mean to, but it's got like over a million hits. And I'm like, oh, God damn it. I didn't put like my nonprofit logo in there. I didn't say anything about funding. <laughs> like I could have done a much better job. I didn't think that would happen. You know, I was just uh, me playing around and it's like, oh, shit. But um, anyways, uh <laughs> In 2014, we sailed to Japan from uh, San Francisco to Yokohama, Japan on a Harbor 29. It was the first and only Harbor 29. We actually had to build the boat. It's another kind of crazy story. It's basically a stripped down day sailor, but it was it was good enough. It had a six foot three draft. It had a big bulb keel, had about 45 percent ballast to displacement ratio in that bulb. Um, And the, the idea for me was it heavy weather, bad, real, real proper heavy weather? I'll just deploy a parachute sea anchor with that long, the deep keel and the, and the weight down below. I think I could have rowed out a lot. You know, it would have flipped upside down, it would have came back quickly, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, I thought, all right, this is, but, you know, there were some issues because they were slacking, basically. When we showed up on April Fool's Day, 2014, 
we were supposed to jump on this boat uh, 12 days later after a boat show in, in California where they're like debuting it, you know, and sail it to Japan uh, nonstop. And um, uh, I show up and it's an empty hull and it's still in the mold. They hadn't even taken it out of the mold yet. And I'm like, oh, shit. So uh, I spent the next 23 days building the boat at this factory. I basically became the world's largest volunteer for WD Shock, who's the builder, and um, who's basically out of business today, by the way. Um, somebody bought this was their the attitude. I can understand why. Yeah, right. I know. <laughs> yeah, the Shock family owned it for a long time, and they sold it to another guy who was outside the family who never owned a boat building company before. And he ran it. He just ran it into the ground. And I could see it when I was there a bit. There was just things were getting really wonky within the factory. Just the way things were being done just wasn't right. Obviously, this boat should have been ready in, in theory. I shouldn't have had to build it. Um, but anyways, we built it in 23 days and then sailed it, you know, 6,800 miles or whatever it is to Japan. Um, and, you know, obviously, you know, you're going to have some issues in the process. But uh, we made it there and it was, you know, I was able to deal with whatever it was. Uh, and after that, we started working up in the Arctic. We spent a couple of years, 2015, 2016, working with NASA. They had this ocean melting Greenland program, uh, which sounds great. Like we were working with NASA. Like, oh, my God, you must have all this funding. Like, wow, that's so cool. Uh, 2015, we had to work for free uh, just to prove that we could do it, basically, because, again, there's some skepticism in the situation. We had a smaller boat then, too. We had a 42-foot steel schooner. When I got back from that trip around the Americas, I had like 20 bucks to my name and it was all like moldy, like the $20 has been sitting in a, in a bad part of the boat for too long. You know, I think <laughs> I bought like a case of beer with it or something, but um, I didn't have any money. So I scraped together what I could afterwards and I got this rusted out, funky old steel schooner. I had to rip the deck off and replace it. I had to do a lot of work on it. Um, but anyways, the deck was wood and the hull was steel. But anyways, we worked 2015. They had a big boat that they were paying a lot of money for uh, to, to map uncharted areas. Basically, there's a warmer, saltier water column that's about 300 meters deep coming up from the Atlantic and eating some of Greenland's glaciers from underneath. And so okay. the idea is trying to understand where this water column is and how warm is it and what is it affecting what glacier and all that. So that involves mapping uncharted areas because you have to have roughly 300 meters of depth from the open ocean area, the deep main water, uh, Baffin Bay or whatever it is up in Greenland, all the way to the glacier face. Because if you have like a sill somewhere, you know, sort of like a deep shoal, I guess. I mean, shoal isn't the greatest way to say it, but if it goes up to 100 meters, which it often does at the mouth of uh, fjords, it's like where the old glacier used to sit at one time during like the last ice age or something, and it shoals it up sometimes. Well, if that isn't there and it's continuous deep water, chances are it's being affected by that water column. So then you lower a probe called a CTD to determine uh, just how much warmer it is. And, you know, the salinity matters, too. But the uh, really the, the, the just the general warmth. And it's kind of cool because you can see it in real time. You get the probe back, you're lowering a probe about the size of a, a medium sized coffee thermos uh, about 2000 feet down off the back of your boat. And you're doing it, you know, 150 times or it could take you hours to do it, but you pull it up, you, you stick a USB cord in. We didn't have enough money to get the Bluetooth version. You got to get the USB one. But you take it apart and you stick the USB cord in there and, and load it up and you see a graph on your computer and you're like instantly like, wow, this is 
whatever, three centigrade warmer than the rest of it or, you know, whatever it is, uh, which is substantial if it is three centigrade. I mean, one centigrade is fairly substantial if it's warmer than the water, it's still melting it, you know. And it what, varies. what type of size was this stream? Is, it, is, is this like a large expanse of water that's constantly moving, or is it just like a small funnel? Like, like yeah, well, it's it? like it's like the, the ocean. You got like if you were in the middle of the ocean, you'd just be able to I don't know go straight down to the bottom. It, it's not like continuous. Like the water's all the same all the way down. You have like layers. You know these call they call them water columns, but you have different layers within the ocean that can behave in different ways, and you have different currents. You know, like there's. There are some yeah. deep ocean currents that move very, very slowly. And then you have like a Gulf Stream and whatnot moving faster. Um, so, yeah, it's just it's just, uh, you know, it's just this section of the ocean and within the depth. Why? I couldn't tell you all the all the, the nuts and bolts of it. You know, it's like uh, I can tell you a lot about a combustion engine, but I can't tell you everything because I'm not a scientist at the end of the day. I never even went to college. I never spent one day in college. So, I mean. You know, I just start the nonprofit. That's why we have a scientist in the organization, because I'm obviously not. Because <laughs> you need one. <laughs> yeah, but I know it's there. What I don't know is why doesn't it mix more? You know, like what does it or what could create more mixing? Maybe because it's so deep that like storms and wave action cannot penetrate that far deep to mix it, you know. Um, but I'm sure a scientist could give a better explanation, but it's there. I can tell you that. And it's interesting because when it goes into the column, it drops out the other side. So as it gets deeper, it goes from cold to warm to cold again. And, you know, you can see it in these graphs where it's at and how deep it is and so on. So they, NASA had this big boat they paid a bunch of money for called the Cape Race. It was a cool boat. I met the captain, really, really good, uh, super knowledgeable, super like super captain, basically doing a great job. But there's a lot of places they couldn't get to because of just the size of their boat and their own parameters for safety. They, you know, the depth of the water, all these different things. So we played like big fish, little fish. We were like the little boat that could get areas that they couldn't get. And we kind of worked with them in tandem in certain ways to kind of try to get to the areas we knew they weren't going to get to. And we didn't get anything from NASA for doing it. But 2016, we did get contracted by them uh, via a university, a university of Washington, and uh, and then we're, you know, contracted to work with NASA, which still, um, first off, you work like a farmer. In other words, you don't get paid till it's over. If a farmer has a flood or a drought, they don't get any money. Uh, I don't know if there's farmer's insurance. Maybe there is. I've never been a farmer. I doubt but, it. <laughs> yeah, probably not. You probably just screwed. all your chickens die or all your cows die or your corn dies. You're just screwed. Well, it's the same with us. If, if something happened, we couldn't get the data. We wouldn't get the money. Uh, and then at the end, the, the amount of money we got was basically broke even. Uh, it wasn't like any, we didn't make any salary off that expedition, but it was still a big step in the right direction for us. Uh, we mapped an area about 800 miles from the North Pole uh, uh, called Ingelfeld or Inglefield uh, by Connock. And it's about half the size of the Chesapeake Bay, which is the largest tributary in the United States. Uh, so it's a huge area to map. And um, full of ice, tons of icebergs there, but they also have narwhals and polar bears and all the, you know, you're the high Arctic, you're 78 north, you know. Um, And yeah, so we had a lot of storms up there. We almost died once. It blew, it was supposed to blow 25 and it blew about 100. Um, And my crew panicked. My first mate tried to get into a life raft uh, in the middle of this thing. I had to, I had to, (laughs) (laughs) I had to stop him. It was kind of crazy. He was he was younger than me, bigger than me, and all the rest. But I still was able to, you know, it was just like a war of wills or something. I was able to keep <laughs> control. Of it. 
and I almost lost control. Um, whatever. We were able to get through it. And then I had to fly him home and the cameraman, the cameraman went AWOL, um, uh, because they're just broken. It was interesting. The scientist is a female and not that that makes any difference really, but these other guys were young guys. And you know, the, the one first mate thought of himself as being pretty macho and all the rest. And these two guys were completely broken after this storm. And Nicole, the scientist was fine. She bounced back in like 24 hours. These guys never bounced back. I literally had to fly them off the boat and fly somebody else in to replace them because they were like broken men. The storm just, I don't know. It just, it's like shattered them. Um, yeah. I'd imagine a scientist being able to navigate a situation like that with a pretty heavy head of logic. Do you know what I mean? Like the, they probably understand more about what's going on, I'd say. Not necessarily on someone who's been at sea like for a long time like you have. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't expect a scientist to like lose the shit and freak out over something. I would expect them to be calm in the corner, or I'd hope they would be. Yeah, it's interesting like how people react to like sort of near-death experiences. Now, I think mm. that most people, how many times or how often do people go through life and are in a situation where they're like, oh my God, I might die. Oh my God, I might die today. Oh my God, I might die in the next 20 minutes. Now, it's well, how are you going to behave? Are you going to panic? And that's what this guy did. But uh, you know, it's it's you stick somebody in a battle and bullets are flying overhead. Some people curl up in a ball, some people go into shock, some people run towards the enemy with all bravery. And, you know, I mean, everybody reacts different. Now, if it's your fifth battle, then sure, you know, you're kind of used to it as much as you can. I've been through enough storms and enough near-death experiences in the ocean with all these different trips that, you know, I mean, yeah, it sucked, of course, but, you know, I, I, I've been there and done that at some level. These guys had never experienced that in their life. So, you know, this was the first time, and you just don't know. You can sit at a bar and have a beer with a guy. He could tell you anything about how he sails here and does this, and he's brave about that. Put him in a near-death experience and see how he behaves in the middle of that experience. And we just you just don't know, you know, and and I don't even yeah. think that yeah. he knew or, you know, I don't think that's something you could even know in yourself until you're there. And then you realize, you know, however you're reacting to that situation. But anyways, it was a it was a difficult expedition, but we were successful. We did everything we said we we're going to do. NASA was happy. We got like an award from the director of NASA and all this kind of stuff. Uh, so that was good. But the boat was basically shot. Um, I had already done a couple refits. I told you I already had to rip the wooden deck off and replace it and mm-hmm. do all this. It just wasn't the right boat. It was a 42-foot steel schooner, and we only had room for four people, really. And it's 60 gallons of water and 80 of diesel. It just wasn't, you know, we needed something bigger. But yeah, we didn't it's have not any a long-distance boat. No, nah, not really. I mean, I was doing stuff with it. I probably shouldn't have been doing with it. But then again, I did the same with the Alban Vega, the Pearson, the, the Harbor 29. My whole life, I've been, you know, I've been breaking boats. Yeah, I've been broke, man. I mean, this is what happens. You got whatever you could get your hands on. And I'm ambitious. I'm going to do big sailing trips. And if all I got is whatever, if all I got is a 25-foot Catalina, then what the hell? You know, I'll see you in Europe. I'm, you know, I'll figure out a way to make it. But um, but yeah, the you know it's it, it it definitely was a slow progression in some ways with the funding and in the organization. 2017 was difficult. We didn't even have a boat anymore. Um, I didn't know what it was. 2018, we went to the Northwest Passage. We jumped on somebody else's boat, so we didn't have a boat. But I, I you know I found someone who was going up there. I convinced them to take us to a part of the Northwest Passage, uh, uh, Croker Bay, on south of of, uh, of uh, Croker of uh, Devon Island. Sorry. Devon Island is the largest uninhabited island on Earth, and it's so big it has its own ice cap. 
But we, you know, so we had to kind of figure out another way to get creative with it. And I have a podcast, a single-handed sailing podcast, which is kind of a shit show, but it, it exists. And I was sitting I around. Listen to the, it, mate. I like it. Listening yeah, to you uh, sit around in your underpants talking about sailing. I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> half inebriated half the time, but anyways, <laughs> um, whatever. Um, so I was doing a podcast at the Toronto Boat Show. I used to do a lot of talks at different boat shows for a while there. And um, and there's not much to see at Toronto Boat Show if you're a sailor. If you're a power boater, it's great. There's like three sailboats oh, in an okay. ocean of power boats. Um, but anyways, I, at night, I'm sitting in a hotel. I'm talking about how Bruce Roberts 65 would be a great research vessel. I get an yeah. email from yeah. somebody saying that, hey, uh, I know somebody with a Bruce Roberts 65. They they never finished building it. It's like half built, basically. Um, they're thinking about donating it. You know, they're, they're getting older. The health is getting bad. Uh, maybe they'll donate it to your organization. So I drive up to Delaware where the boat's at, you know, the next state up from Maryland. And um, and I went on a dock and I see this boat and I'm like, well, it's got masts. You know, it's got this, it's got that. I mean, you could tell it had mold on it too. It had like eight colors of mold going down the side. But, you know, whatever, I'm seeing through that. The interior, there was basically no interior, not much interior, you know. Uh, there's nowhere to sit or sleep or anything. Uh, but no galley, you know, no, and all the systems were old, you know, and uh, the engine only had 60 hours on it. And it was a wow. rebuild from uh, the year 2000. So, you know, it was 18 year old rebuild, with, which is bad, by the way. You don't want an 18 year old rebuild with 60 hours. Um, I did put 1200 hours on it since then, and it's working fine. But, uh, nice. but that can't be a problem. But anyways, I, I get this guy to donate. It takes, I don't know, six or nine months to convince him because, you know, it's not easy. He put a lot of money into it, and it was his dream to sail to the Arctic on this boat. So, you know, it's nice. It was built for the Arctic. Uh, but eventually he signs it over. He actually had a stroke not too long after. He lost. He doesn't even know who has the boat. So really a shame because I wanted to show him the boat when it was oh, finished. Sure. I was going to take him sailing on it. Yeah, but he I was, was going to ask his, that. Did you take him up there? No, well, that was a funny thing too, because he first donated it. I'm like, all right, man, I'm gonna get this boat. You gotta go meet us up in the Arctic, come on board, we'll take you sailing. He was like, ah, you know, it's, it's too cold up there. But too cold up there, you <laughs> build it for the Arctic, dude. He built a boat for it. But he did build it 18 years earlier. At this point, he's in his late 70s. He's he's oh, heavy set, he's having issues. Yeah, he was out of shape, and you know, he just he, he was having problems. And that's he had a stroke afterwards and um and he, he doesn't even know who has the boat. You know, he doesn't, he's kind of got like dementia or something. So it really sucks. But anyways, oh, I did finish the boat and uh, I took it to Greenland last year. There was also a pandemic, obviously. So nobody was going anywhere in some of those intermediate uh, years. Um, I spent a couple of years in the back of a boatyard living on the boat uh, while finishing it because I couldn't really work a full-time job. I was a yacht broker also for about four years uh, during some of this process. Uh, which is a great educational experience uh, because you learn about the shipyards, the construction, you do surveys all the time. You're ripping. Yeah. I work with yeah. the surveyors, so I'm always ripping boats apart. So I, you know, I, I know all the behind the scenes and then delivering boats for the last 15 years. I've also sailed these. Uh, I'm going to on the eighth. So in, in five days, I'm going to fly from Columbia to the Virgin Islands, take a Tiana 48 up to uh, the Chesapeake. It'll be my 31st time doing this. I've done 30 trips already back and forth to the Caribbean and that's just one route, you know? So I get to take these boats out in the ocean and actually see what they can do. So whether, you know, you name the boat, both production boats, 
proper stick built boats, center cockpits, double enders, you name it. I've sailed the thing uh, out in the ocean. So it's it's been a good learning experience for me. But anyways, I, I had to basically quit everything to finish building this boat. I didn't have enough money to to rent an apartment or, or a house or anything. So I just lived on the boat, but it was construction. So I like I had sawdust in my bed every single night for two years, basically. I was in kind of the middle of nowhere, Maryland, because I couldn't get anybody to haul me out in Annapolis. So it's just kind of podunk, redneck Maryland with, you know, and, and you're living in a boatyard covered in <laughs> sawdust for two years. I mean, there is no ladies in a boat. I can tell you, I did that research. <laughs> it does not sound like the American dream, I'm being honest. No, 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 <laughs> it's, it's, it sucked. But I got the job done. We sailed to Greenland. I actually paid, I've been in Colombia and, and Bogota for the last couple of months. And I, I paid for this a year and a half ago and bought my plane ticket a year ago because I knew I wouldn't have much money at this point. So I had to, you know, I was planning as I could do, I need a break. You know, after all this time and all this, you know, it was kind of a lot of crazy work and we ran out of money, like, I don't know, a half dozen times in the process of building this boat. Luckily, I did not have to dumpster dive for wood like I did with the Alpen Vega. But there was times where we had no money, where we would just run out of money in the project. And uh, But we always had some weird Hail Mary situation. Something would come from some direction uh, that often you didn't even see coming. And uh, and then you're able to move the project a little more. And you'd run out of money. And they moved a little more. And you run out of money. And we were able to do it and, and get the boat ready. And we went to Greenland last year. It was hard getting up there. We had some issues with the boat. They were kind of baked in. The rudder bearings sailed early on the trip. Uh, I, I had the boat surveyed for insurance, and you and I could sit there, and I did it with the surveyor. You take the rudder, you shake it. You know, everything seems fine. I but the stay. rudder, yeah, but the rudder's massive. It was huge rudder, mm-hmm. and you cannot reproduce the loads of 30 knots of wind at 200 miles offshore sitting there shaking a rudder on the heart. <laughs> That's a good point, actually, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought it was fine. The surveyor thought it was fine. Then you get out there and it starts clunking all over the place. And they just, they didn't make the bearings right in the first place. So I had to haul out and replace those. I had issues with uh, a depth sounder. Ray Marine just gave me a bad unit. Uh, yeah. So I had to haul out in, in uh, Nova Scotia. I had to haul out in Rhode Island, which was unexpected. I had to haul out in Nova Scotia to fix this issue. One of my crew... Uh, fell off a seawall nine feet and broke her arm in three places. I had to fly her home. I'm down a crew member. It was very depressing for everybody because uh, we all wanted, she worked really hard to get to that point. We were, we were so close to getting to Greenland. When we got to Greenland, one of my crew hit an iceberg at like seven and a half knots. It did nothing to the hull. I mean, it's a steel hull. It was made for the Arctic. It, it didn't do mm-hmm. anything, but uh, a P, he obliterated it. And it was about the size of like a Cadillac Escalade, I guess. And it was mostly hiding underwater. But a piece went back, hit the prop, dinged the prop. So now I had to haul out right. to Greenland. Right. There's only one place in all of Greenland that can haul a boat. My boat is over 50 tons. 50 tons is the limit for most uh, haulouts in America because that's usually the biggest uh, travel lift they have. Yeah, the travel lift. lift, yeah. Yeah, they don't even got travel lifts in Greenland. They got these old rail cart systems. It's like these train tracks that go down in the water with this cradle thing. Oh, yeah. Which, scratched the hell out of my boat, but what do I care? I made a steel. You can always paint it. I wouldn't, I'd be very hesitant to go to Greenland with like a really nice fiberglass boat, like a nice all grip or beautiful finish. Cause you're going to scratch the shit out of it. There are no marinas. There's not a single marina in Greenland. It doesn't exist. You have to tie off the seawalls with rebar sticking out. You have to tie off the boats, whatever people just tie off to anything. 
Like, you know, you tie off to them and they tie off to you. I've gone to the grocery store and come back and had like five boats tied off to me in like, you know, a half hour. And you're like, oh, shit. Now I got to try to move all these boats somehow. I've had like 200 ton fishing boats tie off to my 42 footer, just massively bigger than me. But they don't care. They're like, this is our and I get it. Look, these guys are commercial guys. This is their country. This is their living. I'm a visitor. Yeah, I'm a guest. So I'm doing my best to, to deal with that. And now my boat's bigger. It's 72 feet overall. It was at 22 meter, 23 meter, something like that. I take up a decent amount of real estate. So I have to be aware of that. Usually fish factories, uh, usually I could try to tie off there. Uh, and some of the fish factories have been abandoned, which is even better. An abandoned fish factory is like the creme de la creme uh, for tying <laughs> off. marina real estate. <laughs> yeah. But people, you know, like I said, you're tying off the boats. People are tying at three in the morning, some giant fishing boat would tie off to you, whatever it is. Um but, you know, I love Greenland. I love the Northwest Passage. I love the Arctic. You know, you're, uh, we're still mapping. By the way, 2000, uh, last year, uh, 2022, we ha- we're mapping uncharted areas. We basically took the research and expanded it. So we have a lot more equipment. We have much better equipment. We had a $300,000 multi-beam sonar. In the past, we had like a $20,000 single beam. Uh, we're doing core samples of the seafloor, water samples of some called a Niskin bottle, collects it at different depths. Mm-hmm. Then we had like 600 water samples, uh, lots of core samples. Um, and then there's a flow through systems with sensors. There's probes you lower down. We've had the CTD again. Um, you know, we had over a half a million dollars science equipment. We had more money in science equipment than the value of the boat. But, um, you know, so it was it was a good expedition. It was successful. And uh, we actually collected so much data that the scientist is is kind of overwhelmed because like, oh, my God, what am I going to do with 600 freaking water samples and these core samples? Like they're going to spend the rest of their life in a lab just trying to, like, you know, process it. So we're making some new uh, contingencies for processing uh, some of this, the samples. So it's so much weight. It's like the expedition after the expedition for this poor scientist, because they now they've got all this stuff. They've got to they got to figure out what it means. You know, it's. Collecting data is meaningless if you don't actually figure out, okay, what, what is this? What does this mean? What have we, what have we found? Yeah. With NASA 2016, we published a couple papers. What we discovered with that is the, water, the warmer water column can actually build up and go over shallower spots, and they didn't think this could happen. So it kind of opened up the door to like, oh, wait a minute. It might not just be 300 meters to depth. If, if there's a 200-meter section, it can build up and work its way up and back down and still affect the glacier, you know? And um, so that was sort of the big discovery there, I guess, Um, Mm -hmm. along with just a lot of good information. And, you know, a lot of the stuff we do also has to do with the the nutrients. Uh, The the sediment that comes off the glaciers have nutrients in it. Basically, a glacier has a river of melted water underneath of it, more or less. And as the glacier moves through the rock, it's kind of eating and destroying the rock. And it releases sediment into the water and the sediment has nutrients. The nutrients are necessary for plankton and uh, it just, you know, the the general ecosystem up there. And when you have a proper healthy glacier, uh, a ocean terminating glacier has an ice shelf and uh, it basically, it's like a Goldilocks thing. You know, you don't want too much sediment. You, You don't want no sediment. It has to be the right amount. And it does. A healthy glacier, you know, is in balance with nature. It's taken however many thousands of years to get to that point. When you have a land terminating glacier, basically a dying glacier, it just creates a river of mud. It just really, it puts too much sediment. And then the fjord becomes like a giant mud puddle, which blocks photosynthesis. 
and just drowns out, you know, some of what's in there. So, and then if you have no glacier at all, obviously you're not getting any of the sediment. So we do a lot of research in relation to understanding the health of the glaciers, how they're behaving as far as how they're melting, and also what's happening with these sediment and nutrients, along with mapping with a much more powerful multi-beam that can do a, a three-dimensional map of the seafloor as opposed right. to a single right. beam that's just a single beam. And um, so it's great. You know, we're, we've, we've expanded uh, a lot of this, this research and we're going to continue. We're going to head back there. Um, I'm leaving in mid-May for a five-month expedition. We'll actually be up there a month longer. Uh, the expedition will be a month longer than uh, last year. So we'll be up there five months uh, continuing doing this in, in other sections. But it's great. I don't know. It's exciting, man. I mean, you know, you're surrounded by uncharted in uncharted waters. There's rocks. I mean, Greenland is nothing but rocky, you know, yeah. and there's rocks all over the place. You have no idea where the rocks are. You could be going along to be a rock right in front of you. You're not going to see it, you know, more than likely. And um, so it's like old school navigation. Like where on earth can you go these days that are truly uncharted? You know, it's kind of like what the people were doing 200 years ago. You get far yeah. enough north, your compass doesn't even work anymore because you get too close to the magnetic <laughs> north pole. Yeah, point. Your autopilot doesn't work anymore unless you have a satellite-driven autopilot called a DGPS or a GNSS, depending on who makes it which we have on our boat now. But in 2015, 16, we just lost our autopilot. You just have to hand steer for months at a time, mm. you know? So, and there's polar bears up there that will literally eat you if you get shipwrecked. Uh, you know, it's just, um, yeah, it's great, man. I mean, I, I love, <laughs> I was I love from that reaction from you. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> Mixing yeah, the polar bears and the novels. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, it's like, it's as close as you get to old school exploration, you know, yeah. in, in the modern era in the 21st century. So, and I love that. I love the explorers, you know, like I said, the explorers are big heroes of mine and, and, um, in many ways it's people like Shackleton and Amundsen who taught me what it was to be a man. Because in some ways, growing up on the streets, because I got into them about 16, 17 when I was getting in trouble. And I didn't have, you know, my dad did the best he could and all that stuff. But growing up in a cold and getting out of that, I lost all my faith in my parents. I didn't really have a good role model in some ways. Like there were ways my dad was good in some ways, obviously. But in other ways, obviously, having your kids grow up in a cold is not good. And then, you know, all the infighting and the destruction of the family and all the rest. Um so, yeah, it kind of became like my role model of what it is to be a man is to be someone like a Shackleton or Tom Crean is a great example of one of his men that he had. Unsung Hero is a great book, by the way. Tom Crean, Unsung Hero. Um, he was on two Scott expeditions and a Shackleton. But. Um, but, yeah, you know, it's it's exploration is is a form of financial suicide. I mean, it's like shooting your bank account in the head, basically. You're just going to be broke. I mean, even those guys were broke. Even Christopher Columbus was like broke when he was dead. You know, he died. He didn't have a lot of money. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't matter what the, the explorer is throughout history. The vast majority of them were struggling with funding. They were always battling to get money. I mean, you know, so when Scott tried to get to the South Pole, he didn't even leave with his men. He had to stay in England and try to get more money. And he met them up later, you know. So this is the story of being an explorer, unless you're like rich from your family, uh, there's just not a lot of money in it. And I don't know, maybe you can spin it with, we are going to have some YouTube videos uh, from last year. The guy's still working on them. It should be out in May or something. They, if you go to Ocean Research Project is the name of the organization. You go to oceanresearchproject.org and uh, that's the website. We do have some videos on YouTube. It's kind of minimal, but we'll be putting out a 10-part series basically 
of roughly 10-minute videos uh, from last year. And we had enough things happen last year that, it, you know, it's kind of an exciting enough story. Um, you know, I hate social media. I stopped doing it in 2019 completely, but it's stupid for my organization to not do it. And that's didn't help in some ways. So I was stubborn about it for a while. So we're starting to try to <laughs> pick up and build that again. Uh, because the reality is that's where people go to get information, the YouTubes, the Instagrams, terrible information, by the way, social media is not yeah, a lot of it is bullshit, but yeah, yeah, suppose exactly. it might be a useful stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And most of the influencer culture is some version of an avatar. I mean, you know, my yeah. life is so wonderful. I'm so great. It's, it's not, everybody struggles. Everybody has good and bad. And, um, but anyways, we, we need to tap into some of that too. So we'll have a cameraman again this year, uh, filming the expedition. I'm not going to go a whole hog. Uh, YouTube sailor, but we are coming up with a different sort of angle to it, I guess. You know, this isn't like young, beautiful people in bikinis and beaches and tropical locations living the dream and big party and all that. We're sailing off to the ends of the earth where it's cold and it's difficult. And um, and we're trying to do science. We're trying to understand what happened. You know, the most interesting thing to me about this glacier research is that the glaciers are disappearing, uh, you, know, you know, universally. And when they're gone, when are they going to be back? They're probably not going to come back until the next ice age. Well, when the hell is the next ice age? Is that 5,000, 10,000, 15,000 years? So in 100 years, 200 years, at some point in the relative near future, they're going to be gone and nobody is going to be able to study them anymore. And we need to collect data now while we still can so future scientists can see the data and be like, oh, that's how it used to be. That's how it is today. And how is this going to affect the, the plankton and the nutrients and you know, I mean, your guess is as good as mine, but I don't think it's going to be good. Uh, the Earth has had 17 ice ages in the last million years, roughly. So obviously, ice ages come and ice ages go, but this is happening pretty rapidly. So, you know, and nature doesn't typically change rapidly. It's usually a slow situation. So I'm not going to be alive. You're not. None of us are going to be alive to actually see the full effects of it. But it's important that we collect data now. Uh, because once they're gone, they're gone until the next ice age. And I don't even know what the humans are going to be doing in 10,000 years. Like, are we, have we blown ourselves up in nuclear war? Have we, like, are we living on Mars? Like, what What does 10,000 years even look like? You know, it's hard to yeah. even imagine. I'd be so, surprised um, if, we would, if we'd see that whole thing through. <laughs> I don't think we'll be around in 10,000 years. <laughs> that's, that's the problem. You know, I, and I think a lot of people feel the same, along with myself. Or, or unfortunately, our species, we kind of wait until the bottom has fallen out to sit around and be like, Oh, we should have done something. We should have fixed the bottom. You know, it's, you have to, it's, make, money, uh, man. You have to make money in the meantime, you need to make a lot of it. <laughs> right. So that's that's the problem. The problem is what, <laughs> what is the overall emphasis and, and what do we, as a society, what is, what is success? You know, success typically in society is deemed of having the big car or the fancy car, the big house, the, I don't know, trophy wife or whatever the hell it is. Uh, you know, and so people really gear themselves as I want to make money, 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 money. And it's addicting. I, I can only imagine if you got a million, you're like, oh, man, if I just had 10 million, you get 10 million. Oh, man, if I just had 100 million. Oh, I want to be a billionaire. Or, you know, it never really ends. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess we somebody's had to redefine success as not being something that goes to material or capital gains, but something more about just being a good person or are living in balance with nature and society, both raising your kids properly, you know, whatever it is, as opposed to just how big your house is and how fancy your car is. But that's not the world we live in today for the most. I'm not saying people aren't like that, 
but there, you know, there is generally a emphasis on material possessions and things that don't really matter. And that drives corporations and drives decisions make decision making on a political level uh, that does not help any of these issues. It all helped that this issue has gotten wrapped up into politics. So we have roughly in the United States, half the people believe it's happening, half the people think it's a hoax. <clears throat> I think that these days, generally people, regardless, think it's happening, but is it natural? Is it man-made? Um, yeah. luckily, luckily for me, I, I do not run an advocacy organization. I'm not an activist. We collect data and the data will speak for itself. I'm not going to speak for the data. Let the, let the science speak for itself. I have my own personal opinions, which is basically, I just believe experts. If nine out of 10 mechanics tell me I have a problem with my carburetor uh, and, and one other guy, or I'm sorry, my uh, catalytic converter, and one other guy says that it's, I don't know, the power steering or something, I'm going to believe it's a catalytic converter. Nine out of 10 doctors tell me I got a problem with my lungs. One guy says it's my heart. I'm going to believe that if nine out of 10 scientists say this is a man-made issue or that man is contributing in some way, then you know what? I'm not a scientist. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a mechanic. You know, if the majority of sailors, whatever it is, if the majority of experts say something, then generally speaking, I'm just going to be like, all right, well, they spent their life studying this or building cars or whatever it is. Um, but again, because I don't really want to dabble in activism uh, for a number of reasons, I don't need to worry too much about the controversy of red versus blue, liberal versus conservative, this versus that. Um you know, when we were studying plastic trash in the ocean 2013 and 14, uh, that's not an issue that's political. It made it easy. I could yeah. go to yacht clubs. Yeah. I could talk about it at the yacht club and do a presentation. Anybody can picture a Coca-Cola bottle floating in the ocean and be like, oh, that's a bad thing, you know, but it, it has made it hard. Uh, you know, a lot of yacht clubs are very conservative in the United States. It's obviously a wealthier crowd. And um I have to learn to talk about these without using certain words. You know, it's like, how do you talk about the issue without raising a red flag in the audience? And there's ways to do it. But anyway, like I said, it doesn't matter too much. There's plenty of people out there who focus on advocacy. They're doing various forms. Some of it I think is stupid, like throwing a uh, paint on artwork or tomato soup on, on artwork. <laughs> yeah, there's people. You know, some, yeah. Sometimes it's like, dude, what are you doing? Yeah. This is doesn't not help helping the cause, does it? No, but Whatever. Again, that's like not my world. I'm, I'm the kind of guy that I don't want to fight the battle from behind a desk and I don't want to fight the battle with a picket sign. I want to be on the front lines. I want to be out there in the ice, surrounded by uncharted rocks and hungry polar bears and giant storms. I want to be out there on the front lines doing it. And there's nothing wrong with being on the behind the desk. Like everything is needed. Every different facet. You know, somebody's got to collect the data. Then you take the data, learn from it, and you do outreach. You educate the public with the ultimate goal of doing policy change, creating new policies on a governmental level. But it all starts with the, the, the data collection. So somebody's got to get up there first and get the information before any of the other things can happen. And that's where I want to be. And that's where I am. You know, I'm kind of on the, the, that edge there. So, uh, so yeah, that's about, that's about that. And uh, an expedition coming up, like I say, mid-May. We still have some berths for sale, by the way. We are selling berths to Greenland and back from Greenland. I cannot sell berths in Greenland because it just doesn't work with the science. You're just, the science just takes over everything. But going there and coming back, what the hell? And um, it's it's vital funding for this. So that's from the website. They can go on and book on those passages. Yeah, the exactly. We only have four or five berths left. We've done a pretty good job, but I need to sell them all because we need the money for this year's expedition. It's going to be a bit tricky. Unfortunately, some of the funding fell through. It was going to go to salary. So 
I have enough money to do the expedition, but I don't have enough money to pay anybody. So we're all going to work our asses off for five months and come back completely broke uh, with nothing. But what are the lengths I'm, of the what are the lengths of those um, runs and like how how much does it cost to jump on board for that amount of time? Uh, they're all about uh, fifteen hundred miles, so it's two weeks. Okay. They're they're roughly two week legs. I think we'll do it a little quicker in two weeks, but you got to bake in some you know bad weather time or whatever. Uh, so one is Annapolis to Newfoundland to St. John's, Newfoundland, and then St. John's, Newfoundland to Nuke, the capital of Greenland, uh, yep. just easier to fly in and out. Greenland's not easy to fly in and out of, so that's easier. And then it's the reverse is the same, you know, Nuke to St. John's, St. John's, Annapolis. So they're, they're, they're long trips crossing the Labrador Sea it is, you know, back and forth to Greenland. That's pretty serious sailing. Yeah, it's good sailing, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it's. I'm sure we'll get some bad. I hope we don't get any bad weather, but you know, it's the Labrador. There's always bad weather in the Labrador Sea, um, and yeah, and they're five thousand bucks for a leg for two weeks, basically. Um, and it all goes. It's all goes to the nonprofit. So uh, technically speaking, it is tax deductible because it's actually a donation to a nonprofit. So, um, so yeah, that's 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 it. We still got a few legs left. Um, and hopefully we get these videos out in another six weeks or so. I uh, get more social media going. Hopefully that will help with some donations. Keep you know keep building yeah, this organization up. And uh, now we got a big proper boat. I spent this winter making some modifications because we found some issues on the maiden voyage. And now you know she's going to be better than ever. And uh, you know I'm looking forward to getting into some of these remote uh, parts of Greenland and, and and uncharted fjords. A nice thing, kind of cool. You can only, it's like going around the Americas. Like I didn't break a record. I created a record. You can be younger, older, faster, slower. I'll still be the first person to do it. It doesn't matter what you do. You can do it standing on your head. I'm still going to be the first <laughs> person to do it. Yeah. Well, when you map an uncharted fjord, I mean, your name's on it. yeah, you just stamped it. I just took ocean research project and put a stamp on that fjord. You're not, no one's going to go back and remap it anytime in the next thousands of years. So, mm. you know, cause they don't change that quickly. So, um, so yeah, it's really neat to, to we've mapped a lot of places. We've mapped, I don't know, about 3,500 miles, nautical miles of Greenland. Um, not, you know, within going back and forth within a fjords and, you know, if you just add it all up, we've mapped out quite a few fjords, but there's still a lot left to do. And then we're going to move in the Northwest Passage probably the next couple of years because the Northwest Passage has just got a ton of uncharted stuff. And yeah. there's a bunch yeah. of good research you can do in there as the ice slowly melts. Not every year is there less ice in the Arctic especially the Northwest Passage. It is still very difficult to sail a boat through there. 2018, almost nobody made it through because there's so much ice. We were up there that year. So it's, um, you can't, uh, there is a, a false sense in some parts of the sailing community that, oh yeah, there's no ice up there. We can just sail through. That's not the case. It's still extraordinarily difficult. So don't just sail up there thinking it's going to be a cakewalk because it's going to be, you, know, you might not even make it, you know. But if you look at the amount of ice in the Arctic, Year to year, there's less and less ice. So obviously, uh, the ice is shrinking up there. It's just, it's a Canadian archipelago. So the islands kind of hold the ice in there. It behaves differently. And like I said, it's not always the same. But yeah, man, it's, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I love to tell you it's a job, but I'm not getting paid this year. So um, I guess I'm the biggest volunteer for my organization. Uh, it really sucks in some ways. <laughs> I'll do deliveries. I got this one delivery. I'll come back. I'll take a couple more boats to the Caribbean. I don't know, I'll scrape together something. I don't know what I'm going to do. Sell my motorcycle, probably. Um, Social know, media, man. You know, that's how you reach. That's how you reach. Yeah, the people. yeah. I hope so. I hope that that helps the organization. I mean, you know, that um, eventually some of it will trickle down as salary. 
you know, um, and we got an executive director now, which is the first year we had it. I used to be the executive director. When we're gone on expeditions for five months, I need somebody to run the the, the organization while we're gone. There's no yeah. communication. Yeah. There's no real internet up there. Starlink doesn't work in Greenland yet. There's no good way to, you know, it's just really, really bad communication. So that's great. Like so many things in the organization is moving in the right direction. Um, and it does suck that, you know, this the funding fell through, a chunk of it fell through, but it's not, it has nothing to do with us and it's nothing to do with the organization. It had to do with the reshuffling like five steps above everybody else. So whatever, right. you know, we got the money, let's go do the research and then I'll figure out a way to survive financially when I get back. And I don't have a, a wife or kids or anything, any real responsibilities as a 41 year old man outside of the, the nonprofit. So it does make it easier. Uh, but these are the sacrifices you make. I mean, it's almost impossible for me to have a wife and a kid and any of that stuff because I'm in the ocean for six months of the year and I'm half broke two thirds of the time. It's just not a very good recipe. So there is a certain amount of sacrifice, but if you want to accomplish a goal, whether it's sailing across the Atlantic, around the Americas, a nonprofit, whatever, it's going to take hard work and sacrifice. I think people understand hard work, but are you really willing to make those sacrifices? And how much are you willing to sacrifice? And eventually you'll get there though. That's the thing. Like the bigger the mountain, the harder it is to climb to the top of that mountain, the better it feels when you finally get to the top. So when I get this organization running, as it gets better, as I make progress, I, you know, it's it's something I can really think about and, and feel good about uh, accomplishments, just like going around the Americas felt great when I got back and across the Atlantic. I mean, you ever do that single-handed, you get to the other side or Pacific or whatever it is, um, there's a real sense, you know, hiking a mountain. It's a real sense of accomplishment. It makes you understand that we're capable of just about anything, that our species is amazing. And there's plenty of examples of people pushing the boundaries of what we can do, not just in exploration, but in all different walks of life. And, you know, it's a part of it's believing in yourself, part of it's working hard, part of it's sacrificing, part of it's having goals and never giving up. Uh, determination is is extremely important. But, you know, we we are just an amazing species. And um, and I really hope we're around in 10,000 years. <laughs> Yeah, well, mate, just crack on with that research and then we might end up there. Yeah, <laughs> that might be the key I'm trying, to it. I'm trying yeah. man. I'm trying. Well, listen, but it, I think we'll try and push those uh, passages for you as much as possible because, mate, I would love to do that. This is just not the right year because I'm refitting my own boat. But yeah, um, yeah, 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 one of my goals is you know, nothing compared to yours, but I, I would like to get on a decent sized steel boat and uh, head up there and do some sailing. So maybe not this one, but the next one, I'll probably jump on board for one of those lugs. Yeah, that'd be hey, that'd be great. Uh, well, I'm sure next year we'll be doing the same thing. Uh, it's, it's a good revenue source, uh, and we, since we we do a little science on the way back and forth to Greenland, but it's minimal. You know, I mean, we're basically just transiting, just trying to get there and trying to get back. And yeah. uh, they're good legs, and they're not they're not easy, especially that Greenland St. John's leg and back. I mean, last year we had a hide from Hurricane Fiona that slammed into Newfoundland, did a bunch of damage. It was like the worst hurricane in a hundred years or something there. Yeah, true. And we were there. We were tied off to a shrimp boat that was tied off to a shrimp, tied off to a seawall trying to ride out this hurricane. So it's um it makes for interesting sailing. That's yeah, oh, real sailing, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, we're right. good. I mean, I, I avoid heavy weather the best I can. In all honesty, I've been through enough. I'm not trying to put anybody through a bad storm. But uh yeah. if it's a gale, sure, whatever. But a storm will 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 avoid that one. Um yeah. thanks. It's a you know, thanks for having me on the podcast. I appreciate it. 
And uh, yeah, wish you the best and, and stay in touch. Let me know. Yeah, absolutely, mate. Just uh, run us through that website again. What is it? Yeah, it's Ocean Research Project. And you can just Google it or whatever, or oceanresearchproject.org.